0: You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org slash connected or call 1-800-460-6276. Hi, Optima attendees, thanks for coming to my live session, um, where today we're going to be talking all about protein. My name is Katie Coles, and I'm the co-founder of Avatar Nutrition, also the chief science officer of Avatar Nutrition, and I have a master's degree in nutrition as well as um, an RD, so I'm a registered dietitian. Basically, all that means is that my entire life pretty much revolves around nutrition, and um, so it's a pleasure for me to be here today talking a lot about protein. One thing I've noticed when on social media, because I make a lot of content for my followers as well as for my company, is that I get a lot of questions in the comments specifically about protein. And when I did a quick Google search, it's it's pretty clear as to why. Um, there is just a ton of conflicting information out there. So, I did this Google search. Here are some of the headings that pulled up. They're out there on the internet. Some were saying you're not eating enough protein, right? Others are saying protein is dangerous. We're obsessed with it. Some are saying not eating very much protein is a good thing. It extends lifespan. And there are other headings out there basically saying you need more protein. More is always better. So it's hard for people to know what to believe. And I think there are a couple headings on here that really illustrate my point. Those are diagonal from each other. So you can see in the upper right, uh, the heading is six reasons that your high protein diet is actually bad for you. And then on the lower left corner, you see six reasons why you need more protein. So that's about as much mixed messaging as it gets. So it's just no wonder that people are confused. And at the same time though, the protein market is just really hot. There's all these new products out there. And what that tells us is that people are willing to spend money on products that contain higher amounts of protein. So there must be some greater benefit to eating more protein. People must be getting something from it if they're willing to pay that kind of money. And so all these companies out there have gotten really creative. They've made things like protein pancakes, probably most of you have heard of that, Um, even protein crackers, protein chips, protein cookies. There are a ton of different uh, flavors of protein bars out there, as well as protein-infused oats, protein-infused coffee. And my favorite is protein-infused macaroni and cheese. Yes, I've seen that in in the aisle at the grocery store. It's amazing. So yeah, companies are really profiting over all of this. And so that leads us to believe that maybe there are some benefits of protein. So what's the deal with it? Is it good? Is it bad? Do you need less? Do you need more? How much do you really need? We're gonna talk about all that today. So in this presentation, we're gonna cover why protein is important. Why protein recommendations vary so much. What factors impact protein needs And finally, how protein needs are determined for a specific individual. And I'm gonna speak about that just from a dietitian's point of view. All right, so let's dive in. But before we dive in, we're gonna talk a little bit about what protein is and where it's found. And bear with me here, guys. It's a little bit dry starting out. um, As we talk a little bit about the definitions about protein, we're gonna get really sciencey. But as we continue along, I promise it will get more fun and more applicable. Okay, so what is protein? Protein is a major nutrient found in food, one of the three major nutrients, along with carbs and fat, that provides calories in the diet. So you need protein, everybody needs protein. And it's found in very high amounts, specifically in meat and animal products. So meat includes things like your beef, your chicken, your fish. Um, Also, of course, eggs and dairy are very rich sources of protein. And there are soy products out there, things like tofu, um, as well as beans. That's a big one for people who are just plant-based eaters. And then finally, there's a lot of protein-fortified products, including protein shakes, protein powders, ready-to-drink shakes, and bars. Okay, so what does protein do in the body? And structurally, what is it? structurally protein are large molecules made of chains of amino acids so you can kind of think about this like beads on a string like if i was to extend a necklace and these proteins are folded right so it's like folding that necklace up and it kind of creates this wad and that's a 3d structure and because proteins have these specific structures they're able to perform specific roles in the body so protein for example makes up enzymes and these are catalysts and reactions. So for example, they care, help to carry out processes, including um, digestion, blood clotting, even the contraction of muscle. So that's really important. Their role as enzymes. Also, they play a role as acting as hormones in the body. So in this role, they're messengers. And what they do is they kind of communicate information between cells and organs to carry out processes in the body. They act as antibodies. So they can bind to foreign particles, like um, virus and bacteria, and kind of identify these and um, activate the immune system. They, there's a little typo here in my presentation, but pH balance, they play a very important role in pH balance, acting as buffers. So it's really important to keep pH regulated in the body, and it stays within this really tight range. And if it didn't, we would die. So protein acts as a buffer to keep blood from getting too acidic and to keep it from getting too basic. And finally, and maybe one of the most famously, what everybody knows protein as, um, is the building blocks of tissues. For example, protein, um, protein makes up muscle, um, bone is made up of, of protein, skin, cartilage, tendons, hair, nails, teeth, right? So all of these structures in the body have a protein base. Okay, but there, I just listed a lot of really important roles. And what you should take out of this is that protein is really important, but specifically it's important in the context of dieting. And that's because it plays a really important role in optimizing weight loss and body composition. So what it does is it acts to build and preserve muscle in the context of dieting. When you're dropping your calories, keeping protein at a certain level is really important. It also acts to boost metabolism. And of course that's important because dieters want to be burning as many calories as possible. That's going to help them achieve weight loss success. And finally, protein plays a really big role in increasing satiety, this feeling of fullness that can really help people adhere to their diets. And that's what determines success on a weight loss diet overall is someone's ability to stick to that diet. So protein plays all these very important roles, not just, overall in the body, but specifically when it comes to weight loss and body composition. So let's talk a little bit about this first one, which is proteins role in building muscle. Okay, so it's important to understand that protein acts as a substrate in muscle building. And it also acts as a trigger for muscle protein synthesis. And those are kind of two different things. So let's get into the first. What do I mean by protein acts as a substrate? What I mean is that protein is a material used in muscle building. So it actually gets incorporated into the muscle and to make this a little bit easier to understand, I want to compare building muscle to building a brick wall. And let's pretend that the bricks in the wall are the amino acids. That's the protein. That's the protein that's actually getting incorporated into this muscle. So every time you eat, you're providing your body the material to build muscle and you add some bricks to the wall. But then if you go a long time without eating, some of these bricks are taken away because you're not giving the body that material used to build. So muscle building is like this delicate dance, right, between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. And in order to build muscle, you want to be adding more bricks to the wall. So you want to be eating enough protein And, and you want to be eating it to the point to where muscle protein synthesis exceeds breakdown. And then, you know, you're building this muscle and you're in a net positive protein balance. Okay. So I also mentioned that protein is a trigger for muscle protein synthesis. And there are a couple of things that are triggers of muscle protein synthesis and work to activate these muscle building processes. One is exercise and another is eating protein, eating protein itself turns on these pathways that then work to activate muscle protein synthesis. And you can see here in the graph, um, what I have on the X-axis is a person eating, you know, 10 grams of protein, 20, 30, 40 grams of protein. And the Y-axis shows the response in terms of muscle synthesis. And what you can see is that as you're eating more protein, when you get to about 20 grams, you can see that muscle synthesis is kind of at a maximum. At that point, it really tapers off. You don't get much greater benefit eating 30 or 40 grams of protein. And that's because this whole process of muscle protein synthesis is driven primarily by one amino acid. There's 20 amino acids, um, 20 proteins in the body, and leucine is the driver of muscle protein synthesis. It's super important. It's kind of like this key that can unlock the process of muscle building. So if to fully maximize this process and fully turn that key, you need to get about two and a half to three grams of leucine in a sitting. And what that equates to is 20 to 30 grams of protein. Now, so the amount is really important, but um, the quality of the protein is also important because there are varying leucine amounts in different types of protein. Plant sources of protein tend to have lower leucine levels and animal sources of protein tend to have much higher leucine levels. So in the graph here, we're showing whey protein and that's one of the most powerful proteins for stimulating this process of muscle building because it's very quickly digested and absorbed. So it hits the bloodstream really fast but it also has really high levels of leucine. Okay, so 20 grams of leucine is basically gonna kind of max out this process And if you keep eating more of that, you're not going to see greater benefit, whereas with plants, you might have to eat something like 30 or 40 grams to maximize that process. But for the purposes of this presentation, we're just going to say that about 20 to 30 grams of protein will maximally activate those muscle building pathways. Okay, so also when you look at the graph, something that is notable um, is that You don't see, like I was saying, you don't see much greater effect from eating more than 20 grams of protein, but you do see a little bit of an effect, right? The the graph shows the line continues to go up a little bit. So you are getting somewhat greater activation, but studies have shown that it's not really technically significant, but that doesn't mean that it might not be meaningful in some people like bodybuilders, people who really want to maximize their gains and get the most Uh, Muscle building possible. They don't want to leave anything on the table. And studies have compared eating 20 to 40 grams of whey protein. And in young people, what they've generally seen is that the difference is that when you eat 40 grams, you get about 11% higher activation of muscle protein synthesis. So, again, is that going to be meaningful for the average person? Not really. Is it going to be meaningful for a bodybuilder? It might. Okay. So I've just gotten really science-y on you and we're going we're gonna to take it back a little bit. Hang with me here. So why do we care about any of this? Why do we care about muscle? And as personal trainers, you guys probably know the answer to this and you understand the importance of building muscle. But for the average person who's really not enmeshed in the fitness community, I get that question a lot. Um, a lot of these folks will be like, you know, I really don't want to get big. I don't want that much muscle. Uh, and it's important to understand that muscle has a lot of really important roles and it can really be beneficial when it comes to not just weight loss, but also health. So here are some reasons why you, we care about muscle. The One is that in the context of dieting, we want to lose as much weight as possible, but not just weight. We want to make sure that the majority of that weight is coming from fat. That's what we're trying to get rid of. So you you wanna eat enough protein, you wanna do all these things like lifting weights to maximize muscle preservation so that when you do lose weight, most of it's in the form of fat rather than muscle. And let's not kid ourselves. It also looks good, right? It provides shape to the body. Um, And many people don't realize this, but higher levels of muscle mass for a given body weight are associated with better health. Um, For instance, having more muscle is, associated with a lower risk of things like diabetes. You're able to control your blood sugar better. Um, It's associated with a lower incidence of uh, heart disease and even mortality. So muscle obviously is a pretty beneficial thing um, and it can be a marker of health. Um, And maybe the most important thing for dieters is that having more muscle increases the amount of calories you burn, right? So if you're trying to lose weight, You get to eat more food. Right. And that's, that's what we really care about. Um, and some of the, and technically, if you want to get into the math of it, resting muscle for each pound of resting muscle, it burns about six calories. Okay. And that's just to keep to remodel the muscle and just to kind of feed the muscle, just a resting muscle. So if you put on 10 pounds of solid muscle and you're working out really hard in the gym, what that equates to is burning about an extra 60 calories per day. Okay. Let's put that in perspective. That's about one Oreo cookie. Doesn't sound like much. Does it you're like, dang, I hear I could, I could eat more, you know, but one more Oreo cookie a day. That's not much for building 10 pounds of muscle. It's hard to build 10 pounds of muscle. But what people don't realize is that when we say that resting muscle burns six more calories a pound, what we're talking about is resting muscle. We're not talking about muscle during activity or the cost of exercising the muscle or moving a heavier body around, as happens when you put on muscle. If you factor those things in, that 60 calories can e- easily double or triple. you know. So maybe you'll burn 150, 200 calories extra when you factor in activity, depending on the duration and the intensity of it. And that can really add up. That extra amount per day over a week can add up to more than a thousand calories. So then in terms of weight loss, that does become meaningful. So don't let people fool you when when they say that adding muscle really doesn't do that much for metabolism. Okay. Another really important role of protein, uh, speaking of metabolism, is has to do with the thermic effect of food. So when you eat food, metabolism transiently rises. Okay, so the reason for that is calories are needed just to process food. So you're burning off calories in that. You're also burning off calories in the form of heat. I don't know if you guys have ever had the experience of like going to a Brazilian steakhouse, for instance, or just a place with really large servings of steak. And you eat all this, you eat a ton of protein in one sitting and you get what we refer to as the meat sweats. And what basically that's referring to is all this heat, all this sweating that you do after eating protein. It's referring to this byproduct of the thermic effect of food. Okay, I've never experienced it myself, but my business partner has, he talks about it all the time. So that's a thing. Um, but anyways, it's the thermic effect of food. and Um, This whole process of eating does burn extra calories, but protein, carbs, and fat are each different in in how many calories are burned off in the process of actually metabolizing each one. So when we talk about protein, if I was to eat 100 calories of just pure protein, 20 to 30 of those calories I just ate would be used to process the protein. OK, so it's not a very efficient process. A lot of it is just burned off in processing. And those are 20 to 30 calories that I'm not going to be storing as fat. So that's a really good thing. Now, carbs, comparatively, if I eat 100 calories, I'm only going to burn off about 5 to 15% in processing. And with fat, I'm not going to burn much at all. If I eat 100 calories of fat, I'm only going to burn off somewhere between 0 to 5% of those calories. So fat is stored really efficiently. But muscle is much more expensive to digest. So if you're gonna eat something, um, you're gonna overeat something, it might as well be in the form of protein because you're gonna store less fat from that protein. So that's the thermic effect of food. Also, protein plays a major role when it comes to just helping to keep you full while dieting. And like I was saying, someone's ability to stick to a diet determines how successful they're gonna be in losing weight. So this is, is one of the most important things and protein has been shown to be more filling than either carbs or fat and eating protein also leads to a spontaneous reduction in calories so what do i mean by that i mean that if you're to eat a higher protein calorie or a high protein um, calorie diet and the greater proportion of it's coming from protein you're probably going to eat less food overall without even trying you just spontaneously eat less because protein is so filling And that's super helpful in weight loss. So so people on higher protein diets, oftentimes studies have shown they can lose weight without actually consciously tracking their calorie or energy intake. So how does that happen? Well, there's a lot of different theories behind how protein can increase satiety and lead to this feeling of fullness. And the first has to do with its effect on appetite hormones. So studies show that after eating protein Um, There are changes in appetite hormones that mediates a sense of fullness in the brain. Another way is that um, studies have shown that the amino acids themselves uh, may actually affect the brain. They may directly affect the brain. Food oral processing, that's a really important component. So what does that mean? Well, it means basically chewing. And how long it takes you to swallow that food and kind of the texture and some of those variables, like the mouth feel while it's in your mouth. So protein, obviously, if you're eating like an animal source of protein, it takes a lot longer to chew. And during that process, you kind of get the signal of fullness. If I were to have an analogy, it's kind of like comparing eating an apple to eat, to drinking apple juice. Which one do you think is going to be more satiating? Of course, eating the apple takes you longer to eat it. There's more to it. You know, there's fiber in there. And when it comes to the juice, you drink it and it's gone. So studies show that protein um, can mediate this appetite suppressing effect through the food oral processing of it. Also, protein can have an effect on satiety through gluconeogenesis. So when you eat a lot of protein in one sitting, some of that protein is going to be converted to sugar. And that process is known as gluconeogenesis. And that helps to stabilize sugar in the bloodstream, which can send the message to your brain that you're full. So that's another mechanism. And finally, when you eat protein, like we talked about earlier, you get this really high thermic effect. Energy expenditure rapidly and transiently increases. And that's associated with this burning of oxygen, you're using oxygen, oxygen's dropping as in the process of turning the food to energy. And those lower amounts of oxygen in the body can also send a signal to the brain that you're full. So protein can do that in all of those different ways. Okay, so now I just wanna pitch you guys something here. I I wanna get you guys thinking about how much protein we really need because protein is obviously important. We've gotten really sciencey and we've talked about all the different ways that protein is important, but there are so many different recommendations out there. It really can be confusing. You know, in the, in the fitness and bodybuilding world, you've probably heard that you need about one gram of protein per pound of body weight. That's probably the thing that we hear most often. Some people say you need just half of that. And then there's the RDA and this is the official dietary guidelines for Americans that says you need 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, which equates to just 0.36 grams of protein per pound. So the RDA is pretty low and that's a trusted organization. One would think that maybe that's the right answer, Um, but in the bodybuilding community, you hear one gram per pound and some bodybuilders say you even need more. Some say you need more like 1.2 grams per pound. So I wanna take, I want you to take about 10 seconds and I want you to look across these recommendations and think to yourself, or maybe write it down, which of those recommendations most correctly describes optimal protein intake? So I'm just gonna let you come to that answer. Good opportunity for me to take a drink. Okay, time's up. So for those of you guys who said one gram per pound, congratulations, you were correct. Okay, so that might leave a lot of you guys thinking though, why is the official recommendation for Americans so low? The RDA is about a third of that. That's a huge discrepancy. So how could that possibly be the case that we would really need one gram of protein per pound? And the answer to that is when the RDA was set, they were looking at what would keep people from becoming deficient in protein, not necessarily what's optimal. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about the method that they use to determine the appropriate protein intake, which is called the nitrogen balance equation. So protein is the sole source of nitrogen in the body, which is why this can be used in the equation. And what they did was they measured the amount of nitrogen that a person consumed through food, through protein in food, and compared that to the amount of nitrogen excreted from the body in the form of urine, feces, um, sweat, and even hair, Okay, and and dead skin. And if you're in, in, in balance, if you're in nitrogen balance, that's said to be healthy because you're taking in about what you're excreting. But if you're in negative nitrogen balance, And you're excreting way more nitrogen than you're taking in, that's kind of a sign that tissue breakdown is occurring in the body and that you're not getting enough protein. And that occurs in cases like severe illness, for instance, um, or in burn patients. And then positive protein balance is where you're taking in more nitrogen or more protein um, than you're excreting. And that can be normal in cases like a growing child or an infancy. Uh, when you're building new tissue within the body. So a lot of that nitrogen is actually going into the incorporation of this new tissue or even in pregnancy, right? So there are stages where it totally makes sense. But what researchers said is that, okay, if you're a nitrogen balance, that means your needs are being met. But the problem is there are a ton of different limitations of the nitrogen balance equation. It's really subject to a lot of error. Um, For instance, output. Actually, collecting the nitrogen losses. It's really hard to do that accurately, right? Imagine you're collecting someone's pee for a full 24 hours, their feces, um, you can't really collect sweat, right? You can't collect hair or dead skin. So, nitrogen is going to be lost in that. Um, and the equation attempts to account for this, but still, what ends up happening is that usually output tends to be underestimated and undermeasured. So, it can Make it appear like you're a nitrogen balance when really you're not. Also, a major thing that was discovered is that the human body can adapt, so it can adapt to conserve nitrogen and just stop excreting as much. And and this is you know this is a real thing that happened. It's pretty sad, but um, nitrogen balance equation and was carried out looking at this in Warsaw, um, in the Warsaw Ghetto in the 1940s, and where people were literally starving. And what researchers saw as these people were starving to death um, is that they were able to excrete less nitrogen up right until their death, pretty much, right before their death. So it looked artificially like they were in nitrogen balance, like they were getting enough protein. But of course they were getting nowhere near enough protein and nowhere near enough total calories. So that just goes to show you that this probably isn't the be- best method to determine what's optimal. Um, another thing is that this equation doesn't tell us anything about the shift of nitrogen in the body. It only shows intake versus loss, but what could happen is protein or nitrogen can shift from organs, between organs and, and muscle. So you may be losing protein from your muscle and it may be going to organs. Um, that probably isn't the healthiest thing, but this equation can't detect that. And one one of the most important things probably is that this equation doesn't consider benefits outside of nitrogen balance meaning that it doesn't it doesn't uh, consider that eating more protein can cause you to build uh, and preserve more muscle for example in the context of dieting which is really important it doesn't consider the benefits that protein can have on increasing the sense of fullness or increasing thermogenesis and the number of calories burned all of its metabolism boosting properties And it doesn't consider other parameters on health, like proteins effect on blood sugar. So you, you have improved blood sugar control when you're eating more protein and, and studies have shown some somewhat higher sensitivity to insulin. So all this is really important. Okay. So I think we've just established that one gram per pound is probably closer to the truth. So does that mean that this whole time the bodybuilders were right? All these guys in the gym going around saying you have to do one gram per pound. Well, not necessarily. One gram per pound is a really nice black and white recommendation, super easy to remember. So that makes it nice to tell people and it's basically gonna cover almost everybody's needs. But does that mean that everybody needs that much? Not at all. Some people really don't need that much. Now research has shown that in general there's this range where people need about 0.65 grams of protein per pound up to at the very, very, very most 1.1 grams per pound of total body weight. So we're just gonna say that people need between about 0.7 to one gram of protein per pound. That's where most people's needs fall. But there are all these factors that impact protein needs. For example, you know, your age, Your goal, are you in a calorie surplus or deficit? Your body fat levels can impact that. How much you exercise and what your activity level is like. And even your diet type, what are the foods you're eating? All of that kind of determines where you fall in that range. But I think the nice thing about the one gram per pound rule is that you're basically gonna make sure that nobody falls short. And as a dietitian, I think that's important. You really wanna err on the side of of giving people the optimal results and Falling short, obviously, isn't optimal. So that's more towards the high side of things. Okay, so let's get into some of these factors that impact protein needs. Age. So in general, people over the age of 40 need more protein. And that's because they experience this blunted anabolic response to protein. And I have this graph here where you can kind of see the response in muscle protein synthesis varying amounts of protein from you know 10 to 40 grams and what you can see here is that at eating about 10 grams of protein a older person will have about half the response to protein that a younger person has then once you get up to about 20 grams things are starting to even out a little bit right so there's they're getting this anabolic response muscle protein synthesis is pretty well stimulated 30 grams 40 grams once you get up to 40 Now the muscle protein synthesis is about the same between the elderly and the young adults. So basically what that means is that older folks are less sensitive to leucine. That's what researchers believe this all comes down to is their bodies are just less sensitive to leucine and you need a higher dose of leucine to get that same response. And that's why it's important for older folks to really pay attention to how much protein they're getting in a sitting. And beyond that, the quality of protein becomes even more important. Remember how I was saying that leucine is the main driver of muscle protein synthesis? Um, And that's true. And not all protein is created equal when it comes to that. They have varying amounts of leucine and animal products tend to have more. But there's also other amino acids that are really important in this muscle building process. And those are called essential amino acids. And we're gonna get a little bit more into that as we go along, but right now in the next slide, we'll talk more about essential amino acids, what they are and specifically why they're important. But what you should take away from this is that right now, animal source of protein are gonna be a much more powerful type of protein for muscle building because they're higher in leucine and essential amino acids. So um, it's really important for older folks to pay attention to that quality. And something else of note is, um, with older folks, they tend to lose a lot of muscle as they age. So in the young adult, the human body is made up of about 50% of muscle, but by age 75, that drops to about 25%. So older people who wanna maintain their strength and independence really need to pay attention to this. This is where protein timing does become important as well as you know the quality, and the amount you're eating, and, and even the timing. Right? You really want to be activating these muscle synthesis pathways. Um, another thing that increases protein needs in older people are inflammatory conditions. So, a lot of these folks tend to have things like arthritis. Um, a lot of them might have diabetes, things that are really inflammatory in nature. And what happens with those inflammatory conditions is the liver creates these acute phase proteins. Protein is used to create these mediators that then kind of do this crosstalk with the rest of the body that activate inflammatory pathways. So that takes proteins out of the pool of available proteins within the body. So you also need to be getting more protein. um, If you have inflammatory conditions when you're aging. So all of these, for all of these reasons, it's really important for older folks to focus more on protein. All right. So I promised you that we would talk a little bit more about essential amino acids and we're gonna do that in this slide. Vegans need more protein and that's because of the type of protein that they're getting. I told you a little bit before and you can see on the graphs that um, protein from animal products tend to have higher concentrations of both leucine and essential amino acids. So let's talk about essential amino acids. Essential amino acids um, are really important because they are proteins that the body cannot make itself. It has to get it through food, and of the 20 amino acids, nine of them are essential. Now, animal products tend to have a much more complete amino acid profile, meaning that they have essential amino acids that are roughly in about the same concentration as needed by the human body whereas plants, they really don't have that. Very few plant proteins have this, contain all of these essential amino acids in the right amounts that the body needs. So those have been called incomplete proteins. So vegans, people who aren't eating animal proteins, really need to pay attention to combining proteins to make sure that they're getting enough of these essential amino acids. Um, And you can see here in the graph that there are all these sources from plants you can see that they're clearly lower in essential amino acids and leucine so that has important repercussions for muscle building uh, somebody who's vegan is going to need to eat around 10 to 20 percent more total protein to hit that leucine threshold and get enough of these essential amino acids that they can really maximize the muscle building processes that said i get a lot of questions from from vegans who ask well, can't I just supplement leucine? Can't I just supplement uh, branch chain amino acids as well and get some of uh, of this leucine that's going to be so important for muscle building? And that'll make up the difference, right? And actually, the truth is no, because free leucine, while it can initiate this process of muscle protein synthesis, it also needs essential amino acids to finish the job, to actually have the material to build muscle with. So you need both of those in conjunctions together, just throwing in a leucine supplement or a branch chain amino acid supplement and hoping that that's gonna make up the difference really doesn't work. These essential amino acids are really important. Also um, consider the bioavailability and digestibility of these plant proteins. It tends to be a lot lower than animal proteins. What I mean by this is the absorption rate is lower and the ability of the body to use these. And that's because plant proteins tend to have more fiber and also components called anti-nutrients that kind of block the absorption of this. So what we see is that most plant protein sources are absorbed and bioavailable at this rate of about 70 to 90 percent, whereas animal protein is much more bioavailable, much easier digested. In fact, and those are really absorbed in the... 90th percentile so anywhere between 90 and 99 percent so if you're you know you're going to need to eat more total protein to make up for this if you're a vegan and finally this is just kind of the cherry on top is considering the thermic effect of food right the ability of protein to boost metabolism and increase the number of calories burned temporarily right after you eat that protein Um, and what studies have shown is that because of this better amino acid profile of animal proteins they tend to boost metabolism more than uh, plant proteins and for instance you can see here uh, this is what one research study showed was that whey had the greatest effect on boosting metabolism followed by casein so these are milk proteins and that um, soy kind of had the lowest effect so that's just one more benefit of eating animal protein okay We'll move to a different subject now, dieters in general, need more protein. So goal can really dictate protein needs. Um, If you're in a calorie deficit, you're going to need more protein. And the reason for that is the body has to turn to its stores to get calories from somewhere. You're not getting enough calories. So first it'll turn to fat, but it may also turn to muscle, right? So it may turn to muscle, harvest the proteins out of those turn it into calories to help make up for this energy gap that you're in. Um, And if you're in a surplus and you're getting plenty of calories overall, the body doesn't really have any reason to dig into those protein reserves. So your muscle is a lot more safe if you're eating more food. And this is a little bit counterintuitive because you guys have probably heard people say, um, to maximize muscle building, if your goal is to build the most muscle possible, you need to be eating more protein but not if you're dieting, right? Okay? Not if you're not if you're doing it right. If you're eating enough calories and carbohydrates, that's really protein sparing. It's going to keep some of this protein from being broken down, the protein that you're eating as well as protein from muscle and turning it into energy. So you're just going to need less protein overall. Okay. Piggybacking on this idea is body fat leaner people are gonna need more protein. And the reason for this is that body fat serves kind of as this extra source of calories for your body. So a person who, you know, think of some of the clients you have, um, someone who is maybe 300 pounds and maybe they have 50% body fat, that's a lot of body fat to draw from. The, The human body's probably not gonna get that desperate and turn to muscle and to use that for calories. That's just not as efficient of a process. But as this person continues on their weight loss journey with you and their body fat stores get less and less and less, and say they drop down to like, you know, 200 pounds, maybe 20% body fat. um, That's a lot less fat to draw from. So now the body you're going to be at greater risk of losing muscle as the body tries to harvest some of this protein from the muscle, take those proteins and turn it into calories. So that's important to remember is that the leaner a person is, the more protein they're going to need. Okay. And finally, how much a person exercises and just their activity level overall can increase protein needs. And the reason for this is because whole protein, whole body protein breakdown tends to occur with higher levels of activity. And this really applies a lot to athletes. Okay. So why do athletes need more protein? Well, I think it's pretty obvious for weightlifters. Let's take weightlifters. You know, their whole goal is to get more protein in order to build and remodel muscle, to repair that, to promote muscle synthesis, and just kind of, to provide this material to increase the amount of muscle they have. But endurance athletes, a lot of people, a lot of endurance athletes think that they don't need protein. This has been kind of a historical issue that they're like, you know what? I don't really necessarily want to increase my protein intake because that might mean adding muscle and that's weight. That's not really going to help me race faster or improve my efficiency. So, you know, they don't really focus on protein as much instead, historically endurance runners and athletes have tended to focus more on making sure they're getting enough carbs, getting enough calories to really fuel their performance. Um, but that's a mistake because protein, you know, can be very beneficial to endurance athletes. A lot of people don't realize this, but, um, the energy used during endurance activity about 10% of that can come from protein that's eaten protein in the liver and protein that's broken down from muscle 10% that's a lot so endurance athletes need more protein to kind of offset this protein oxidation that happens during activity also the proteins aren't really necessarily used the exact same way as is, as in um, as in weightlifters right so Protein is really used to remodel muscle, to build muscle, but endurance athletes, yes, you are having muscle repair and you are building a little bit, but a lot of these proteins are going to be shuffled into uh, mitochondrial genesis. So let's talk a little bit about mitochondria. You guys might remember that word from maybe middle school biology, right? Where you learned that mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. And what their role is, they're organelles that are in the cell and they act to take the energy you eat from food, right, and actually turn it into ATP. So it's taking the food you eat, turning it into energy that your body can use. And for endurance athletes, that's a really important thing. These mitochondria are really important because, you know, you want them to work as efficiently as possible because they're the thing that's going to fuel your performance. And what protein does is it kind of acts to help remodel these mitochondria to make them better and also it's used in remodeling structures that improve oxygen delivery for the athletes right like um, for instance remodeling capillaries and stuff like that stuff that's going to push blood around the body so that's going to make you a better athlete so really getting a lot of protein uh, for an endurance athlete is still important and also um, right after a race or right after a practice endurance athletes something they want to pay attention to is getting kind of this carb reload, right? And studies have shown that if you're not getting that much, um, that many carbs after a workout, something that can improve glycogen resynthesis from these carbs is eating protein. So it can really enhance the uptake of the carbohydrates into the cell and kind of replenishing these glycogen stores that were lost during the endurance activity. So, yeah, athletes don't think about it, especially endurance athletes. They don't really think about it, but, uh, it protein can have a lot of really important roles. Okay. So I think we've nailed down that for most people 0.7 to one gram of protein per total pound of body weight is where it's at. That's about how much a person really needs to be eating to optimize, you know, dieting success and body composition and stuff like that. Um, but. There are exceptions to this rule, and this is really important to remember. For example, very obese people. They may not need 0.7 grams of protein per pound. They may need quite a bit less just depending on how much extra body fat they have. And I I thought that it would be good to illustrate this by an example. So let's pretend you have two different clients. One is 200 pounds and 25% body fat, okay? So if we do the math on that and we're, we're using our rule of 0.7 grams per pound, uh, we're multiplying that times their body weight, what we get for their protein recommendations is about 140 grams. Eh, that seems definitely doable and reasonable. Now, let's say that you have a 450 pound client who ha- maybe has 65% body fat. Okay. If we employ that same math and we multiply 450 times 0.7, what we get is 315 grams of protein. That's gonna be really hard for somebody to eat and probably not very appropriate. Good luck getting your client to do that. It doesn't taste good, it's not palatable and it seems like overkill, right? Because it is overkill. If somebody has that much body fat, you have to remember that body fat really isn't very metabolically active. It doesn't require a lot of calories to exist really the thing that's requiring the calories and the protein is going to be your muscle. So maybe a more appropriate thing to do in the case where somebody is very obese is to look at lean body mass instead. Um, And so what dietitians do is they might take that lean body mass, calculate it out, and multiply it by 1 to 1.2 grams of protein per pound. And in that case, when you do all that math, you get a protein recommendation of somewhere between about 157 grams and 189 grams. Okay, so that's a lot more reasonable than 315, right? And another thing, and maybe an easier thing to remember, um, is that something else that people do is just using ideal body weight. So they take their client and they're like, okay, they're 450 pounds, 65% body fat, where would I like to see them down the road? What is the optimal body weight? What's their ideal body weight going to be at the end of all this? You know, maybe you say for that person, it's 220 pounds. Okay. So if you do the math um, and you multiply that by 0.7, you get a recommendation of 154 grams. So that's kind of right on track. And if you multiply it by one gram, that's 220 grams. So somewhere in that range, all of that is still reasonable. Okay. And one other exception to that 0.7 to one gram rule is going to be if somebody has pre existing kidney conditions. So these folks will be in like, stage two, three, four kidney disease. Um, but once they reach the phase where they're in dialysis, the filtering of the, the kidneys is happening with a machine and the filtering out of the proteins, so they don't really need to worry about it as much. But it's important to remember that you know these people need significantly less protein. And that's not really something we want to mess with. Um, so but just understand that if there's a pre-existing kidney condition, these rules are not gonna apply and they need to be seen a specialist. A little bit out of the scope of this presentation, but definitely something I thought I should mention. And speaking of kidneys, can too much protein damage the kidneys of a healthy person? I thought it would be fun for us in the last 10 minutes or so of this presentation to go over some of these protein myths out there and to bust some of them. And I think that this is the most prolific myth is, Healthy people just being terrified to eat more protein because they think that's gonna cause damage. And why would they think that? Well, that myth originates from the fact that the kidneys are instrumental in breaking down protein and filtering out um, the nitrogen and turning it into urea and all these metabolic processes. And at the end, excreting it in urine, right? So the body does all these pathways, the kidneys do to to, to try to, get this, uh, get to turn everything into urea, right? So it filters out all the waste. And obviously, if you're eating more protein, more of these pathways are going to be activated, putting more stress on the kidneys. So people think, oh, I don't want to stress out my kidneys. They might get worse over time and not as good at filtering things out. I'm just really overtaxing them. But the truth is that this only happens with pre-existing conditions. So you have to have a problem already with your kidneys or have severe diabetes or something that's going to compromise your kidneys in order for protein to cause damage. Now, that being said, like anything else, if if you eat enough protein, and I mean an obscene amount, you can have a problem. So, I mean it the the dose makes the poison even if you drink enough water that can kill you okay so protein in an obscenely high amount can cause problems and this was seen in in pioneers coming over from the east to the west a couple hundred years ago in the us Um, and because they didn't have access to a lot of food they ate rabbits that was something that they could catch and they could eat and rabbits don't have a lot of fat on them it's really just a lot of lean protein so To stay alive these settlers were eating massive amounts of protein and what happened was their body could not produce enough enzymes to convert uh this protein and the nitrogen in the protein to the urea okay so it built up to toxic toxic levels and the end product was that they ultimately succumbed to this and they died so yes you can't eat too much but that amount has shown to be like maybe two and a half to three grams of protein per pound for long period that's a lot of protein i mean if you're looking at like a 150 pound person that's going to be like 350 grams of protein a day that's crazy high Um, so obviously wouldn't advocate that but research has shown that two grams of protein per pound of body weight has been safe after two months that's still pretty high and quite a bit beyond needs but that has been shown to be safe for a period of two months also 1.1 to 1.4 grams of protein per pound has been shown to be safe after a whole year okay so certainly one gram per pro- of protein per pound isn't anything that's unusually high and would cause problems okay next myth kind of piggybacking on that is that too much protein can cause bone damage can cause brittle bones And this myth came from the observation that when people ate protein, um, calcium was excreted in the urine. They saw that happen and they thought, okay, protein is pretty acidic. It must be the acid that is causing this calcium to leach out from the bones. This is terrible for bone health. But the fact of the matter is there has been, never been any um, studies showing that the calcium that's being lost is from bone. In fact, studies have shown that when you eat protein, you actually are able to absorb more calcium in the GI tract. So you're actually absorbing more calcium and that might be what this higher amount of calcium in the urine is coming from. You're absorbing more, so you're also excreting more and it's kind of offsetting the losses. So beyond that, um, actually higher protein intake has been associated with higher bone density and better bone health in general. Okay, so that one's busted. Next protein myth, and this is a good one for all you fitness folks out there. You can only absorb 30 grams of protein in a sitting. Is it true? We hear it so much. It seems like it must have some basis, right? But actually, I think what's going on here and where this myth came from is that people were confused between the amount of protein necessary to maximally turn on muscle building pathways, which is about 20 to 30 grams of protein in a sitting, And they confuse that with the amount they could absorb, right? So they were thinking that there's this end cap on the amount that can be used for building muscle, but that's neither, but that's certainly not true. Um, Yeah. Studies on have shown that if somebody, for instance, eats 30 grams of protein versus 90 grams of protein, there's no greater response in terms of muscle protein synthesis. It kind of maxes out. Like we talked about earlier and like shown on the graph around 30 grams. But that doesn't mean that anything beyond that is a total waste. The body is gonna absorb virtually all the protein that you eat, especially if it's animal protein. Um, And yeah, a lot of the extra protein that you're eating beyond 30 grams, of course, is gonna get broken down, oxidized and used for energy. But that doesn't mean that all of it is. A little bit of it is still gonna be used for tissue building purposes, shuttled organs, things like that. Um, But what's really important to remember is that extra protein beyond that 30 grams has been shown to suppress muscle protein breakdown. And remember how I said that total muscle building is kind of this dance between muscle breakdown and muscle synthesis. Well, muscle breakdown is a part of the equation. You're maximally stimulating muscle protein synthesis when you eat 30 grams of protein. And if you continue to eat a little bit beyond that, you're suppressing muscle breakdown to an even greater extent. So your total ability to build muscle is going to be higher. Okay, and the next one, protein distribution trumps total protein intake. And I kind of fell victim to this myth back in the day, um, back when I was training for fitness competitions. And um, I felt like it was really important to get the timing of protein intake right. And I emphasized it so much that you would have thought that if I didn't set my alarm and eat protein, like every three or three and a half hours that I would just completely atrophy. I'm not kidding. I would take my protein shaker to my job at the club where where for part-time I was a bouncer, right? And then I would just open it up and drink it because it was three hours, my alarm went off. I needed to make sure that I really maximized muscle synthesis for this show. Um, But the truth is that long-term studies looking at how protein is distributed uh have really shown that it doesn't really make much of a difference right um so theoretically theoretically it would um, make sense that if you're activating muscle synthesis several times per day then that means you're going to get a greater muscle building response and some people might even believe that hey if i can maximally stimulate this pathway and then just keep it high keep eating protein continuously then I'm really going to be golden, right? Then I'm going to be building so much muscle. But research has shown that after eating a meal, protein um, dropping in your blood is a really important part of building muscle. You, it's called having a refractory period. So you need, you need um, protein to drop from the blood. Okay, that's, that's part of this whole thing. If you're continuously eating protein, like was done in some studies where they infused protein into the veins of people through an IV, what they saw was this massive increase in muscle protein synthesis, but then it dropped anyway. It dropped regardless of more protein entering the bloodstream. So that's going to happen. You need protein to fall for a certain amount of time before you can eat protein again and activate muscle protein synthesis. So this break between meals is really important. And studies seem to show that eating maybe a meal every four to five hours at a protein dose of maybe 20 to 40 grams of protein, that's going to be the thing that really helps you build muscle the most. But again, how much does this matter? In theory, that makes a lot of sense to activate muscle synthesis, let it drop, activate, let it drop, and and really be building muscle. But studies have shown that over the long term, the distribution doesn't seem to matter between people eating just like two meals versus somebody eating six meals. So, um, but you know, there are populations where it does matter. It may not matter as much in young adults, but. For instance, um, older folks, I talked to you guys about hitting this leucine threshold and that being super important. Well, that's really important for older people to maximize this, as well as uh, maybe people who are looking to get the most gains possible. For those people, that's really important. Okay, but for most people, what you guys need to remember is that total protein intake for the day is gonna be way more important than how you distribute that protein. And finally, the last myth is that more protein is always better. That isn't the case. So protein, just like a lot of other things, is subject to the law of diminishing returns. So with muscle building, what we've seen is that that tops out around one gram of protein per pound. That's eating protein beyond that isn't really going to do much more for building or or preserving muscle. Also for satiety. Um, Studies have shown that at some point eating more protein really doesn't produce a greater response or greater fullness in the brain. Um, There was one study that looked at people eating 0.82 grams per pound of body weight per day versus 1.32. And what they saw was that the 0.82 gram diet was just as satiating as eating more protein. So at some point it's like, okay, that maxes out as well but there are some advantages to eating more protein. For example, we talked about the thermic effect. You get that transient boost in metabolism initially right after eating protein. That's gonna be helpful. So if you're overeating a macronutrient, protein is probably gonna be the one you need to choose. And then of course, there are significant disadvantages to adding more protein, um, especially in the context of dieting. You only have a limited amount of calories to work from. So that protein is gonna displace carbs and fats in your diet. And you don't want that especially if your goal is performance you're going to need a certain amount of carbs um, and you're going to need a certain amount of fat to prevent fatty acid deficiency and keep hormones that impact metabolism high while dieting like testosterone so that is important to note more protein isn't always better all right so we talked about a lot of different things today and let's just do a quick recap so these are the important things i want you to remember Protein contributes to diet success, right? So it optimizes muscle building, it boosts metabolism, increases a sense of fullness. There are several factors that increase protein needs, which include older age, fat loss goal and being in a calorie deficit, lower body fat, higher activity level and having a vegan diet. And just remember 0.7 to one gram of protein per pound is ideal for most people. So those are your takeaways today. I hope you enjoyed my presentation. Here's a few references. Um, I might try to post those online for you. But again, my name's Katie Coles. You can follow me. My Instagram handle is at the fit dietician right there. You can follow my company. Our handle is avatarnutrition.com. I really appreciated speaking with you guys today. So thank you.